to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Emily Gow and I'm the Programme Officer at Cumberland Lodge. If you're unfamiliar with us, we are a charity founded in 1947 based in Windsor Great Park. We convene multi-sector conferences, panel debates and retreats that engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives on, in candid conversations on pressing societal and ethical issues. If this is your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work, and we discuss topical issues focused on building social cohesion. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place on, in October on schooling and inequality, and we discussed what a sustainable and inclusive schooling system might look like and how we can address inequalities within our education system. If you missed it, you can catch the webinar on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website, or on SoundCloud and other major, major podcasting platforms. Today's theme is beyond tokenism, and we'll be discussing ways of addressing the practice of tokenism to achieve more meaningful diversity and inclusion. So the definition of tokenism is the practice of doing something, such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group, only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. So to, dis to discuss this topic, I'm delighted to be joined um, by four uh, excellent panellists, um, so we've got Dr. Jason Arday, who's Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at Durham University. Um, Tamana Mia, who is a campaigner and media spokesperson and champion for the Young Trustees Movement. Dr. Dayo um, Esionu, who is a Principal Researcher at the Young Foundation and also a trustee for Involve. And finally, Rachel Wilson, who's the Managing Director of the EW Group, uh, which is a diversity and inclusion uh, consultancy. So welcome to you all and thank you so much um, for being with us today. So the webinar is going to last about an hour um, and we'll invite you and the audience to submit questions. Um, so to ask questions, you can use the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom um, or by commenting on our Facebook live stream if you're on Facebook. We'll also be live tweeting, so it'd be great to hear your views and questions. Um, so you can tweet us at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag dialogue and debate. So to get started, we're just going to start um, with a quick poll, um, as we always do. So it will pop up on your screen now. And the question that we're asking is, would you be prepared to call out tokenism or lack of meaningful inclusion in your workplace, educational institution or in the public sphere? I think that's most people. So we've got 72% saying yes, 3% saying no, and 24% saying that I'm sure. So perhaps we can have a... Uh, hear our panelists' thoughts on that um, as we as we uh, go through the webinar. Great. So I'm going to start with uh, Jason, if you don't mind. So Jason, what is diversity, and in what way is tokenism a barrier to achieving meaningful inclusion of diverse groups? Just unmute yourself there. Three. I'm on mute. Um, hey. um, good morning, everyone. Um, I hope you're all well. Um, it's so good to be here. And Emily, thank you so much for having me here. Um, in terms of diversity, I, I mean, the, the good thing is, very rarely do you meet any two people who have the same definition of it. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I guess it's been commodified in the last kind of 10 years, which means that there is a kind of there is a sameness in terms of how people answer this. But I think intersectionally, it's important to recognise that it's embracing and recognizing difference um the word you often hear even associated with for example fundamental british values is this idea of tolerance this idea of tolerating um people or tolerating um diversity you know um 
we tolerate diversity that makes us a tolerant nation and I always find that wording quite problematic because to tolerate someone is almost to resist them in the first place or a group of people so I think in terms of diversity the thing I always think about is this embracing of difference across the intersection and that for me is really important and I think sometimes we can kind of get you know, um, embroiled in these kind of really cute definitions of what diversity is and kind of keeping up with the segutist of the time. But fundamentally, it's 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 inclusion and it's recognising difference, you know, and I think where we are as a society, I, I think we kind of reside in this melancholia where, where we think we recognise difference, but, but we don't. Um, and our resistance to that leads to, you know, racist, xenophobic, you know, discriminatory practices, which really compromise kind of all notions of egalitarianism. So I think it's that embracing of difference, if I was to simplify it. And in terms of the second part of your question in relation to tokenism, I think um, I think people who resist tokenism probably align with um, ideas around meritocracy. Um, and meritocracy in theory is a great idea. Meritocracy in practice doesn't exist. Um, particularly for minority groups within the intersect. So, you know, if if we could live in a merito um, meritocratic society, it would actually be brilliant where somebody can do something and on merit, you know, they achieve um, their end goal. But what we do know is that, you know, minority groups, um, you know, often are not are on the blunter end of that meritocracy. Um, so in terms of tokenism, I think it's kind of thinking about where tokenism sits and, the, and where the locust of power resides in terms of tokenism. And, and, and very often it does tend to be, or it has been historically, you know, um, white people. So when we think of whiteness as a structure, we think it's really important to think about how tokenism resides within that, where that tokenism exists, because, you know, there is a strong argument to suggest that black and ethnic minority people, um, in alignment with the findings from the McPherson report, report, in 1999 and 22 years later they don't benefit from that tokenism in the same way so I think um, when we talk about tokenism it's, it's very hard sometimes to extract the personal experience and the subjective kind of organic experience from what the actual reality is and so in terms of the work I do you know I would unapologetically always speak to the fact that um, you know have I experienced tokenism I wouldn't say so um, have I seen examples of it? Yeah, I have, but I wouldn't say that I particularly see people of colour benefit from that, particularly women of colour. Thanks, Jason. That's an interesting um, way to start. I'm going to turn to you, Dio, now, um, because you've been doing some research at the Young Foundation. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that research and, and the key findings. Um, and we'll pop the, the link to your research in the chat as well there. Uh, th thanks, Emily. Uh, so thank you for having me on this morning and hello, everybody. Uh, so I guess the, just to talk about the research that we did at the Young Foundation earlier this year. So we had four aims and we wanted to understand the perceptions of diversity and inclusion in the social research profession, um, experiences of social researchers from diverse backgrounds, um, and I guess the experiences of diverse, diversity and inclusion initiatives within the profession. Um, and thinking about some of the barriers and enablers to improving diversity and inclusion in the social research uh, profession. Um, and I guess, you know, we were delighted when we had almost a thousand people who identified as social researchers take part in our survey. We also had about 21 in-depth interviews with researchers and five in-depth interviews with um, organizational representatives, so like uh, the SRA, Social Research Association. 
Um, there's, although there's no kind of sampling frame for those uh, in, who identify social researchers. Um, so, you know, we can't really claim representativeness, but I think it does give us a sense of um, the, the level of diversity within, within social research in the UK. Uh, so from our respondents, um, we had about uh, 84% of, of, this, of social researchers are white, 70% uh, are female, about 51% are under 35, 85% um, would identify as heterosexual, 70% um, would say they were atheists. So we've got quite a, a um, different range of, of I guess, definitions of diversity and, and I think intersectionality was quite key in the way that we interpreted some of the results and findings from, from this research. Um, and I think we had a, a sort of 37% of these social researchers work in the public sector, 30% in commercial sector, about 70% in 17% in academia um, and 16% in third sector. So we've got kind of a broad range of sectors, broad range of um, experiences really. Um, and I guess what we, we found was uh, ethnic minority experience of um, the perceptions of diversity was, was that their experiences were not great. Um, you know, one of the respondents said, it's not a sector where you get a lot of black or ethnic minority researchers progressing um, uh, sort of e easily into senior management or you know, it was mostly, in terms of senior management, it was mostly white males. Um, so the profession was felt not to be particularly diverse in terms of representation of uh, people from ethnic minority groups at all levels of the organization, of organizations. Um, and I think what's interesting in terms of tokenism, I think for me is actually the negative and, and Jason, Dr. Dr. Ade spoke to this a bit when he said, tokenism hasn't always been a positive experience for uh, people of color. And I think it, it, it in, our, in our research, we found that actually the workplace culture um, has a, a, a massive impact on the experiences of, of, of people from a minoritized background. So if you are the only one and they've just done it as a, a just to tick a box then actually the workplace culture would not be um suitable um you know it would be it would it would not be comfortable um it would not it wasn't accommodating um of of kind of people from diverse identities backgrounds and circumstances um and there was a struggle of you know people feel isolated or marginalized um and we had some examples of that um so, so another comment was, you know, there was a real laddish bantery atmosphere, which I think came from having a group of white middle class men who all went to sort of very good schools and the same universities. Um, and obviously there were also instances of, of workplace discrimination and exclusion. So I think for me, when I'm thinking about tokenism is really building on the point that Dr. Ade said about it doesn't benefit um, People, it doesn't benefit people of color. Um, there was widespread examples of evidence of uh, discrimination and ex exclusionary behavior. About three quarters of researchers had experienced um, some form of uh, discriminatory or ex exclusionary behavior. Um, so I think, and we found that actually this figure rises with the more number of marginalized characteristics, so intersectional characteristics, if you're thinking about sort of ethnicity, Race, uh, gender, 
age, um, disability, and, and so forth. Um, so I think I'm um, I'm going to stop there for now, but I'm happy to kind of yeah talk talk through talk a bit more as as the conversation goes through. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great. Um, I'm going to turn to Tamana, actually, because you've obviously know a little bit more about the charity sector in particular. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Young Trustee movement that you're involved with um, and how that might be challenging tokenism of young people in particular. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's Hi there. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, yes, yeah, so I've been part of the Young Trustees movement. Um, I've been a young champion. I have represented the South East and we have helped other young people to become more involved in becoming a young trustee. Um, trustee is one of those things that is not common knowledge for a lot of people, um, especially when I was growing up, you know, as a young, young person in education, um, in employment. A lot of people don't know anything about trusteeship and it can be seen as a as a kind of a, a middle class thing, there's a perception of trustees being kind of like senior and wealthy and, you know, having access to a lot of opportunities. And the young people don't often know about this. Um, you'll see that half of trustees are named under John or David and fewer trustees, um, are 3%. Uh, under 30 so there's no sort of secret that there is a real lack of diversity diversity in trusteeship um, and there is a lack of ethnic minorities there's lack of um, people from disabled backgrounds there's a lot of back of um, people from refugee backgrounds and so on and so forth so obviously at the young trustees movement we're trying to change the perceptions of trusteeship and that actually trusteeship can be quite a rewarding thing to do voluntary in a good capacity um we're trying to run workshops to train other organizations about how to make their processes more clearer and more accessible for people of color and also people that are younger um and we're trying to access those groups that might not have access to these special opportunities anyway so trying to help them to understand um how to make decisions, how to sit on a board, how to go through things like minutes and, um, you know, the responsibilities that you have of being a director um, and working with people on a senior level of running an organisation and making important decisions. However, I mean, in those times, you can experience the issue of tokenism where some people may believe that, oh, OK, let's get a young trustee on board oh, because we want to make our board more diverse or we want to tick a box. And sadly, I have seen the case in various charities and it is something that needs to continue to be talked about and change. So in, in Tamana, if you don't mind, in what ways are, are the Untrustee movement sort of um, equipping those young people um, with the skills to join, join the board um, or equipping the charities um, and the organisations um, with the sort of knowledge of how to, to sort of take on a younger person who might have less experience? Yeah, so the Young Trustees Movement, we've been um, doing training sessions. So we've run trainings for charities. Uh, we've invited seniors from CEOs to chairs of boards to trustee boards in general. Um, we've also run training sessions for young people that may not necessarily have had any information about being a young trustee or how the journey starts. Um, we've kind of done workshops in our community. So we've got regional um, champions and ambassadors. 
um, that work together in their local community sort of grassroots level, talking to organisations on the ground, whether it's organising events, sitting on panels, doing podcasts, getting it out in the media, uh, doing a campaign, um, especially around young trustees, um, trustees week, having kind of like a multi-media campaign every, every year. Um, and how to like really run sessions, how to plan practical things um, about meetings, how to run meetings, how to do the basic things that you might not necessarily be taught in education um, and looking at how you can engage um, sort of the top level trustee decision making and how you can work with the organisation and its staff to make a better difference. Thank you. Um, so that's really interesting about the, the charity sector. Um, Rachel, I'm going to bring you in. Um, so you've probably got more insight into other businesses um, and maybe corporates as well. So um, what in your job, you obviously work for a consultancy, diversity and inclusion consultancy. What are the key challenges that you find that organisations um, are having in response to improving their diversity and inclusion practices? Thanks, Emily. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me this morning. Really, really uh, excited about this event. Yes, I'm coming at this definitely with a workplace culture lens. Um, I'm managing director of a diversity consultancy business called uh, the EW Group. We've been in business for 30 years, have helped over 1,500 different organisations become more diverse, equitable and inclusive um, and in the process, trained about half a million people um, across 25 countries. So lots of different experiences of different workplaces um, across all sectors as well, by the way. So private, public and third sector. Um, so lo lots of different experiences. Um, and for us, tokenism really does, un in a workplace context, really does undermine um, an organisation's efforts to become more inclusive. Um, and it's definitely, we feel detrimental to equity at work but um but yeah so in answer to your question emily um the key challenges faced by organizations well the similar topics come up time and time again actually um maybe the top three that i could tell you about this morning that 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 people do come and say to me uh, in terms of their challenges um one is on you know we've this issue of retention of staff so an organization let's say they've done a lot of work to recruit diverse talent into the business but then they're struggling to retain them um, and build an inclusive culture for that for those individuals secondly this issue of having run diversity training um, but then finding that engagement levels across the business kind of ebb away a bit um, and everyone just enjoys the training but then returns to their old behaviors and it's business as usual and then the third popular topic i would say is around um staff networks so an organization who has um a number of staff networks in place um but the finding those networks aren't getting traction internally and they're getting frustrated as a result and you know that then provide gives a has a more negative impact um for those individuals so I was thinking about those three topics and actually tokenism is playing out in each of those in different ways, I would say. So on the retention piece, retaining diverse talent obviously means taking meaningful steps to, to change the overall culture and make sure that people feel that they can contribute, that they belong and that they aren't token hires aimed at massaging that organization's statistics. On the engagement side, um, 
I think that continued engagement and buy-in to the diversity work that an organisation is doing has to really start at the top of an organisation. So um, diversity initiatives need to address intersectionality um, and they need to bring everybody into the conversation from our perspective. So um, otherwise you end up with isolated sort of trans-specific pieces of work that just lead people in the business to think that diversity is something that's being done to them um, and end up feeling sort of told off. So that's detrimental to engagement. And, and then finally on the staff networks piece, staff networks can work brilliantly in organisations, but they have to be, um, they have to be given autonomy and some um, a clear remit, I would say. So, you know, the worst, the worst effect of a staff network is that they feel like they're, they're again, they're a token effort. Um, they're a token group of people whose voices just to give diverse voices some airtime and that they don't have any teeth, if you like, as a group. So those staff networks really need to be clearly defined. They need to be resourced. They need to have the backing of a senior leader in the organization. Um, ideally a senior leader who's a middle-aged white man, who's a clear ally for diversity um, and secondly, they need to be focused on putting forward the views of the minority groups and making recommendations within within the organisation. So the tokenist, tokenism aspect plays out if those people, um, you know, they're, they're just there as a talking shop. Um, and I think at the worst, the worst case is that those groups feel like they're there to fix the problem. So we never want a situation where those people who've experienced disadvantage, whether subtly or blatantly, should be the people responsibility responsible for fixing the system. Um, so I think there's there's interesting aspects of tokenism playing out in in, in all of those examples, really. And um, you know, we we work really hard with businesses to overcome that and make sure that they're they're taking meaningful steps to um, create inclusive cultures. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on the sort of recommendation side. And I was wondering if, Daya, you could come in again and just tell us about what the result of your um, research was and what sort of practical recommendations people can go away with um, uh, that, that came out of the work you were doing. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think what we did is we did, um, as part of the, the research, we did both kind of what are some of the initiatives and how effective um, do people think those initiatives are? So which gives us like a really interesting um, view of this. So some of the sort of uh, common things that people wanted um, was things around um, flexible working arrangements. Um, and that was that was seen as, as, a, as an inclusion initiative to allow people uh, with sort of um, feel included, that felt that that was effective. We had uh, suggestions. I mean, unconscious bias training, interestingly, was um, seen as not as effective um, as some of the others. So, for example, look, uh, the most uh, effective uh, suggestion that was given was things like reasonable adjustments for those with disabilities. There was also things like creation. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> creation of a staff network, EDI internal task force or working group to look at how the organization can actually change. And, um, and I think the key thing was around specific initiatives to the lived experiences of those within the organization, rather than just um, 
dropping in, uh, parachuting in um, external initiatives without recognition of the specific specific context of the organization. Um, there were things like um, uh, having setting and publish, publishing uh, diversity goals and strategies. Um, there were also, you know, sort of like, for example, gender pay gap reviews um, was seen as an initiative, but again, it was one of the, the less uh, less effective things that people thought. Um, so I think those were some of the key key initiatives that people suggested um, in in our research. Thanks, um, Jason. Do you have any insights into um, higher education as well, um, and and how um, tokenism is being addressed in higher education, or what universities are doing particularly? That's great. In it, I mean, in in, in terms of tokenism at universities. I guess a lot of the things that happen, and this is not me being pessimistic, it is quite performative. It kind of leans on the back of what um, Rachel has said and Deo and, and Tamana. But I, I think um, a lot of the last 20 months where there's kind of been, I guess, a global shift and a kind of tectonic shift, really, in terms of how we discuss, you know, diversity, inequality, racial inequality, um, particularly in, the, in, in academia, has been really different. So I think there's a kind of, there's, there's a palpable um, kind of absence of black and ethnic minority people. So what um, there's been a look at is kind of the pipelines in terms of where's the leaky pipeline and a lot of the work of Leading Roots, um, which does a lot of work to mobilize um, and inform black aspiring academics and ethnic minority aspiring academics has worked to kind of create one strength in the pipeline in the first place. But then too, in terms of university organisations um, or institutions, I think what a lot of them are recognising is the importance of having diverse people in what are multicultural and multi-ethnic spaces. And while they may have come late to the party in terms of thinking about those things, um, there are universities that are actively engaged in, for example, having uh, black and ethnic minority PhD studentships, you know, actively trying to uh, create job specifications where there's a remit to kind of widen um, what was a very narrow scope that didn't lend itself to actually diversification. So I wouldn't want to be um, skeptical and say that that's tokenistic, but I'd rather adopt the approach that that is moving in the right, di the right direction, albeit um, at a very s slow pace and a, a probably a, a faster pace is needed to really cultivate um, the change that we need to see in terms of making universities you know a space that is reflective of multicultural and multi-ethnic um, societies thanks tamana did you want to respond to that actually i actually wanted to respond to a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> um there's so much everyone is saying and i i just totally agree i mean with rachel 100 percent everybody is saying such important points but i really wanted to go back to one of the questions that I think it was in the comments, if that's okay with you. Um, I think Maria, Maria asked a question. Um, and I think it's really important, firstly, that I think we all have a duty and a responsibility to, to do something about tokenism and inclusion and diversity. Because I know I see a lot of people, organisations, charities, they throw the word tokenism around, they throw the word inclusion and diversity to you around, they put on this lovely programme or this lovely event and then they forget about it again. And it's one of those things people can talk the talk but they can't walk the walk, to put it bluntly. Um, and it, it's something that 
you know, people will say, oh, let's get a token black person, let's get a token brown person, let's get a token refugee, let's get a token this and that. And you kind of get tired and exhausted as myself, as a person of colour, I kind of get tired and exhausted of talking sometimes about tokenism and diversity and inclusion because we're always talking about tokenism, diversity and inclusion. Again, it's really important, but I, I think everybody should be talking about tokenism, diversity and inclusion. Um, to specifically answer the question, I'd say... I have written a comment, but just to reiterate, it's important to be more diverse and inclusive where you can in all your processes and to avoid tokenism, be inclusive from the start of the processes. If you're going to start recruitment for a trustee, then be inclusive and diverse from before you do that. You know, go and talk to the people on the ground and say, we want to recruit a new trustee to the board. How should we do it? How do you what, how do you want to go through the process? Do you want to be involved in the process? If you're a young person's charity, get the young people involved on the panels. Get the young people involved in shortlisting. Get the young people involved in the answering the, the questions, writing the questions, doing the interviews, doing um, the training, doing the mentor, everything. Get the young people or the relevant lived experience people involved from the start to the finish to ensure that they are fully involved and feel like they are responsible for something in that process. Um Another thing I would say is to make sure that you evaluate all your processes and look what you're doing and where you're going wrong and where you're going right and see what can be done better for the future. It's so, so important that we evaluate ourselves consistently throughout each process and each thing that we do, whether it's like um, a one-to-one chat or an appraisal or a phone call or a meeting, whatever it is, it's so important to evaluate what you do and how you do it to make sure that it's better um, for the next generation because ultimately you know the current generation will be replaced and we will have the trustees of tomorrow and the businessmen of tomorrow and the CEOs of tomorrow so it's really important that the people the trustees now are fully well prepared and well versed the other thing so as I was saying um, have more people of lived experience on your boards and panels and make them as inclusive and actually part of every structure where possible if you see a gap in one of your areas go and fill that gap don't fill it for the sake of filling it fill it because you want to fill it and ensure that yes I'm looking at a right a variety of people look at the people around you they say that it's very important to look at the friends around you the colleagues around you the company that you keep makes a real difference on your decision making and day-to-day activities um Again, run more events, run more activities, run more trainings, have speakers that can go come in and train your staff, train your trustees and say this is what, how, what it's like to go through these processes and not being able to access things. Again, make things more accessible for people. There are a lot of people of colour, people from ethnic minorities, people that are young people that may not understand things like the language, the abbreviations. You know, if you go into a meeting, have a dictionary, have a abbreviation list that the young people can understand. People that aren't usually involved in trusteeship that can understand, you know, make sure that young people or people that are new to this thing, have a mentor, have the training, have the, because when I started out as a young trustee, I didn't actually have access to a lot of things. I didn't have access to a mentor. I didn't have access to -to one-to-one training and all the things that the young trustees movement do now, I really wish that I had access to when I was younger. Um, Make it easy for the people to be involved in, look at their needs, look at their wants, you know, in terms of trusteeship, sort of the, the sphere, you'll see there's almost sort of like the same-ish type people involved in the same-ish type circles. And you see there are a lot of groups that are missing. For example, the young people, for example, homeless people. I don't think I've ever seen personally in my time as a trustee, I've never seen a homeless person sit on a board of trustees ever. Um, 
there are a lot of groups that are absent from the table and that need to be sitting at the table making sure that people's voices are being heard. Thank you. And um, that's made me think um, a little bit about positive discrimination. And I can see we've got a, a question about that as well. Rachel, wouldn't mind um, coming to you and, and asking your opinion on whether positive discrimination is, is a good thing to try and increase get, getting more, more of these diverse voices on boards and, and in organisations. Um, and so, for example, like having quotas and things like that. Well, what's your view on that? Thanks, Emily. I'm, I'm glad you've asked me that question because I think, first of all, we need to clear up a, a co- very, very common misconception. So positive discrimination is unlawful in the UK. So positive, positive action is probably what we're all thinking and talking about, which is something slightly different, which we are allowed to do. So positive discrimination, let's take an example. Um, let's set, for an easy example, it's a hiring, hiring process. Positive discrimination Um, and this is where it's similar to tokenism, would be hiring somebody just because they are X, Y, Z. Let's say they're they're a particular diverse characteristic. So that would be positive discrimination, just hiring somebody on the basis of their ethnicity. Positive action, on the other hand, would be putting in place certain steps and measures to make sure that everybody at the interview um, is able to perform to their best so that you can create that meritocracy that Jason was talking about and you're actually you're making sure that you're finding the best candidate, um, whoever, of whatever, whoever they are, they are the best candidate, but that everyone has had an equal chance at, at proving that they are that person. So that might be things like, um, at, a, at quite a simple level, putting an equality um, and inclusion statement in your job pack, it might be being very proactive about where you advertise that role so that you're getting more um, a more diverse mix of candidates um, into the um, recruitment process. So there's, there's, a, there's a very definite difference between positive discrimination and positive action. So um, that's the first thing, I think, to clear up. Um, Positive action, there's lots that can be done. Um, I mean, it, it's about this creating um, equity rather than equality. So equity being where everyone has um, the resources at, at their fingertips to create um, a fair, a level playing field. Um, and that's really, really important. And then the other the other aspect that we should probably also run through is, is quotas, because you've just mentioned that. So... Again, legally, we have to be really, really careful about the terminology that we use because, um, again, it's um, very much a legal grey area whether it's it's lawful to have a quota. Um, we'd advise organisations to have goals and um, sort of aspirational targets rather than quotas because, again, a quota is saying that you you must achieve a minimum number of say um black and minority ethnic um hires in a year um but that would again lead you down the route of positive discrimination in order to get there so we have to put in place reasonable steps to to create a more inclusive culture um and obviously we all want to get to the targets and we all we all want to we all want to um have a more representative workforce but it is, it's, it's not lawful and it would be tokenism to, to have quotas um, to get there. Interesting. Is that, is that clear? <laughs> Does that make sense to everybody listening? 
I think that's great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, on, on quotas as well, when I was researching um, to, to prepare for this webinar, actually, um, I found that in France, there's something called l'obligation de, de, de l'emploi, um, which is where they, when an organisation has more than 20 employees, they have to make sure that 6% of the workforce are officially classed as disabled. So that would be mm. what you were saying. And so from what you were saying, would that not be able to happen in the UK? That, would, that wouldn't be able to happen in the UK. Not, not as a... Not as a quota um Mm -hmm. you could say most organizations when they're setting out sort of aspirational goals would say we're aiming to have a um a mix of employees that reflects the the population either the population that we serve the the whole population of the uk or the geographic area in which we operate Mm -hmm. and that's that's probably the the best way of framing you know way of, of measuring you know, a couple of the other speakers have talked about measurement and that's so important. Um, and that's one way of, of doing that. So, so are we representative, basically? Mm-hmm. But no, we, we wouldn't be able to do that in the UK. And there is, they do do that in France and there is a similar um, scheme in Italy as well, I believe. And they're, both of those are subsidised by, by the governments. Um, so if they, I believe, I'm not an expert in French or Italian uh, equality law, but I believe they... Um, the business gets a subsidy every time they hire a disabled um, employee. Okay, and we could debate, we could debate where that leads you, but um, that, that, thankfully that's not the case in the UK. Okay. And um, Dio's got a comment actually. Yeah. So um, I, I think, so Rachel has usefully sort of differentiated between positive discrimination and positive action and how it's illegal in the UK. But I think so, so my, um, I think in the UK, for example, relating to positive action, so we've got things like the two-tick system for disability. Um, you know, we've got um, things like, you know, the, there was like the FTSE 100 and and and, and the, the um, strive to get more women in, in the boardrooms. So we've got lots of different kind of positive action strategies that I guess could be could be em- employed in the UK um, and I think and I think that's sort of welcome but I think connected to what we've been talking about is we even if we are striving for these targets if the workplace culture isn't also made more conducive to people of color you know to sort of more diverse individuals then actually the retention issue we, we becomes the, the the thing and which Rachel, Rachel also talked about is if you're bringing people in and the culture isn't kind of conducive to to them wanting to stay they're not going to stay you know it could be more traumatic and for people to stay and, and getting these microaggressions and all sorts of kind of uh, discriminatory behavior um, they won't want to stay and they'll leave um, I think the other thing I was going to talk about was I think it's also it's always interesting when I hear about people's discussions obviously america is a big example of how they use affirmative action and people's issues around that um and i think it's always interesting because there's always been in my opinion affirmative action in the way that white people are brought into the system in the sense that it's always historically benefited um sort of white candidates and and i think just this idea and i think you know i have read uh, can't remember sort of the the research and I know some 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 people are also not comfortable with the idea of kind of positive discrimination then it's a case of you know when they're in are people sort of doubting their ability to get in on their own or have they needed kind of support from government um you know so a recent piece of research we did at the Young Foundation with uh 
a group of, of uh, ethnic minority PGR students. Um, you know, one of them was quite keen about, um, I'm trying to remember the phrase that he used, but it was this idea of, we're not broken, and this is me paraphrasing, you know, we're not broken, so don't need kind of special treatment. We just need things to be done in a more inclusive way so that, you know, they, people can get the most of um, the most of kind of inclusion practices. And then I think positive, positive action really plays into that. Thank you. Um, Jason, do you have any thoughts on, on, on quotas, positive discrimination from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first thing just to kind of, you know, lean on the fantastic points that Rachel and they have said, like, um, I think positive action is used and applied selectively. Um, and like I said, it, it's kind of utilised across certain intersections and rightly so really well. So I think, you know, in terms of gender, I think we've seen, um, you know, some some really important work done there but again I, I would speak to you know um those that you know have those advancements benefited women of color I, I wouldn't say so I also wouldn't say they benefited white working class women either so and I think there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that um I think um for me personally I, I think um I wouldn't call positive discrimination a more aggressive approach but I think it is possibly the most effective way of kind of making organisations um, change the profile of their, of their staffing composition. Um, and I know there's examples where, you know, we can think of America and South Africa where it may not have been used as well. But I also think they can use as case studies in terms of refining that potentially to use. Otherwise, I think the intrinsic motivation for institutions across you know the public private you know voluntary sectors to change those spaces you're really leaving it to the to the you're leaving it to the kind of integrity of individuals to change those spaces and with conscious biases um potentially not identified it makes it very hard for those individuals to change that um, and i guess that's where you know rachel's training and Dea's research and tamana's work is so so important but i i personally would say, um, having done a lot of research where I've seen, you know, people of colour on the sharper end of of um, of not being kind of positively activised, I, I, I would promote something slightly more penetrative than um, positive action. So I don't, I don't think we make very good use of it in the UK. I, I, if anything, I think we apply it pretty selectively. Um, and and I, I mean, we can make a really good argument that we don't really apply it to race because in terms of person specifications and when people design these types of things very often are they done with uh, race in mind um as an example um that they're not really um and i think if it if it is applied properly as someone has said in in the chat i think it's a fantastic solution but because it's not actually applied very well and i think a lot of that comes with um an absence of understanding of probably how to apply it as rachel has said i think that um i think we don't actually see the full benefits or penetrative effect of something like that. So I think it'd be, if we could apply positive action better, I think it'd be a really useful instrument. But um, failing that, I, I, I do think experimenting with positive discrimination, you know, um, could be a useful 
mechanism to utilize if used correctly. And I think in America and South Africa, I don't think it's always been used very well as those two kind of examples. But I think that's the thing with people utilizing these mechanisms. We can kind of take the bad and kind of not use that and take the good and not use that. And by the way, I would apply that to all the intersections. I'm not talking specifically just about race. Mm -hmm. I would apply that to all the intersections, you know, disability, class, religion, um, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, thanks for making that point, Jason. I think that's really important. Um, Rachel's nodding along and I think she's uh, got something to say. So, Rachel, would you want to respond? Thanks, Emily. Yeah, just just to say that, yeah, building on Jason's really good point about positive action being used um, patchily, let's say, and sometimes down to the um, the knowledge of individuals. That isn't that. I agree. That isn't going. That is not going to drive change. That is not going to create um, the equity that we all want to see in the world. Um, from our perspective, the way to do that is it ha we have to have systemic change. Um, you know, particularly thinking about race and what we've seen in the last eighteen months. Now that toward in order to truly shift the dial on on any type of diversity, there has to be systemic change within. I'm talking about within organisations, but obviously within society too. But um, and in order to do that, it has to be a completely holistic approach. So we need to take into account within an organisation that the data that they have, the lived experiences of staff, the business challenges and goals, because ultimately that's what gets people, um, that's what gets the business buy-in and also um, the talent and how that is managed within an organisation. So, um, and, and under, underpinning all of that are things like the policy, the procedure, you know, all of these, everything needs to be looked at afresh through a diversity and an inclusion lens so that you can um, truly embed change within an organisation. So I, yeah, I 100% agree bits of kind of pockets of positive action here and there may, you know, are a bit like a sticking plaster for me. Um, you know, you can do great things. You can, you can do great things just by changing the composition of your academic panels, for instance, and making sure that you have a diverse range of people actually interviewing the candidates. So when we talked about, um, you know, bringing in diverse talent and retaining that talent, it starts at that point when they first experience you as, a, as an organisation and what, what you look like, who you are, um, that's, a, that's an example of positive action and it's brilliant, but that in and of itself is not going to shift the dial. So, um, yeah, I think it's that, that systemic approach is what I'm advocating for. And Tamana, did you want to respond? Yeah, I very much agree um, with Rachel and Jason and Dayat. No, I just think there's a few things. There's so many things to respond to, <laughs> trying to remember everything and everything, people, what they're saying. I think, yes, I kind of ag agree that actually people have their own skills and abilities and obviously have their own merits. And, you know, people should be hired for things like that. You know, you've got it because you've worked hard for it. However, I do, I am aware that, you know, a lot of places do have programs and initiatives available for people of colour, for young people, for, so, you know, for this, this and this, to encourage people to be more aware and open to joining these things. For example, let's say the civil service, they have different programs for young people to join the civil service because they may see that they're underrepresentative of certain areas. Or, for example, the... Um, Labour Party, they have the Joe Cox programme to encourage more women to stand for, you know, 
being in parliament and being interested in politics. So things like that, they actually do make a difference to people. Um, and even at the Young Trustees Movement, where charities and organisations approach the Young Trustees Movement to ask for young people to become involved, because they, the Young Trustees Movement didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. It's a new initiative. It's a new movement to encourage um, the knowledge about being a trustee from a young age and the challenges and the positives of going through that process of being a young trustee. Um, so actually, I think it's important. I think we have to have a balance um, in educating people, having that systemic change, because there is an ingrained culture in various areas of society or even the charity sector, as Rachel said, it is, there is a many, many sticking plasters to hold things together. Um, and unless you see change from the top end of the spectrum, it might not filter down to the right or the bottom end where the grassroots work is happening. So it's actually really important, as, 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 as Rachel said, and as I said earlier, that, you know, we need to get the lived experience, the people of lived experience. I know people are wanting to define lived experience is basically like, as I said on the chat, that say, for example, you have a mental health issue, you have experience of having a mental health issue and going through that mental health issue, and you're going to use your experience to change it into something positive so it's the same here with the trustees you know you've gone through the experience of being a young trustee you're going to use that experience to help change the other lives of other trustees and help them by whether it's mentoring whether it's training room whether it's speaking out on your experiences because being a trustee 10 20 years ago is much different to being a trustee now going through the processes myself I have seen trusteeship evolve from the, the early beginnings of when I was involved in the big organizations where things were very strict and rigid in the processes and you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that and you had to sit quietly at the back of the room because you're the token young trustee and you have to sit and listen because there's all these big senior people around the table but now I do feel like that element is still there however we are slowly shifting and talking about that we need to scrap some of these traditions and um, hierarchies and seniorities sitting around the table at trustee boards. Thank you. Um, I'm aware we've got a few questions in, in the chat. I think some of them have been covered naturally, so that's why I haven't necessarily gone to them. But um, there's a couple of great questions from Amir here. So I wondered if we could sort of finish on those. Um, firstly, how can we fix these talking shop problems that Rachel mentioned? Um, and secondly, to define what the difference is between feeling included and actually being included. Um, so would any of them, I'll open that up to, to any of the panellists who want to respond. I was just going to say how do we fix these talking shots it's almost like saying like as in be the change that you wish to see in the world it, it literally is that like if you're going to do something jolly well do it if you're going to say you're going to do something then go and do it and say you, you know when you're going to do it how you're going to do it this is what you said this is what we did and this is how it's making a difference like it is very, very simple in that sense. I'm aware that a lot of organisations talk and say they're going to run this programme and do this event and increase the statistics and increase the percentage of people. And it's about channeling, it's about actually putting them to be accountable. Like you said this a year ago, what have you done? A year's finished, you know? It's like when you apply for funding, the grant, you have to go through an application process. There's a strict criteria you have to meet. The grant funder said they will give you the money on this condition. If you meet this criteria and you give us a report at the end of it, at the end of the year, the charity gives the report and say, this is what you've, we've done with your money. This is how we're accountable. It's about accountability. It's about addressing 
what you have and haven't done and how you're going to improve yourself for the future. It is. Should I just follow up on that as well? Um, just to say, um, I think there's a zero tolerance approach that needs to be taken by organisations to some degree. So, you know, what we need is for, for companies to, to step forward and say, this is not acceptable behaviour for us at, within our workplace. So when you are when you are on salary in your job, it is not accept, you, you know you, it is not acceptable for you to behave in this in this way in a way which is um, uninclusive. You know, people are entitled to their own opinions um, outside of um, work, but when they're on salary in the workplace, they need do need to behave in a certain way. And I think. Um, you know, in, in order to, to truly, for instance, stamp out racism in the workplace, there has to be a zero tolerance approach taken. Um, you know, you can you can develop softer approaches for, for, for different types of behaviours that you want to change. But I think organisations need to be clear where their line is, what's OK and what's not OK. Um, yeah. <laughs> I forgot which question. I forgot which question I was answering, but I know Emil wants to say something about that. So, yeah, and I think from our research, I think people were quite keen for training uh, for leadership um, and management, um, and not just kind of, you know, everyone. Like I think Rachel alluded to this, people come and then it, they go away after, but that actually is woven into the fabric of the organization. So there's an EDI framework, where these strategies and goals, progress is kind of monitored and, and it's really kind of in the way that strategy is written, in the way that its um, uh, operations are carried out. It, you know, sort of that diversity and inclusion is woven into that. And so it's not just around, oh, this is a document that we have that sits somewhere, but actually it's actually in the day-to-day -day life of the organization and then just to kind of quickly answer the you know, feeling included versus being included and um, this is completely my own interpretation and you know happy to be kind of um pulled up on it but i think from recent research that we've just done uh, being included is some of the practical steps for ensuring that uh you know organizations can take to um make sure people feel like, so for example, you know, meetings not taking place in a pub so that those um, who who don't, you know, don't want to be sort of around alcohol, so for religious reasons, are being included. So that's kind of a practical step to it. I think feeling included, that's a bit more um, nuanced because it's, it's someone's internal perception um, about how they are responding to some of the, you know, either exclusionary practices or inclusionary practices. Um, and I think, that for me is is how I would I you know, differentiate them, but you know that's that's just my own my own opinion. Thank you so much. Um, we have only got a couple of minutes left, but I wonder just quickly before we end to, to turn to each of uh, each of our panelists and um, just to sort of um, tease out one of the main recommendations or keys or practical points that you've taken away from this discussion for people who are listening. Um, so um, perhaps let's start with you, Jason. That's great. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I guess one of the key kind of practical points, um, and I've always kind of come back to this, is making really good use of the kind of legislation that we have. Um, I don't think we do that enough. And I think, you know, in, until we find something, I guess, a bit more uh, penetrative, I think positive action is a really good, you know, instrument um, and, and its potential 
is unbound, but I don't think we use it in a more directive um, and deliberate way. So if we could kind of become more knowledgeable around that, you know, as kind of Rachel was saying, and really become cognizant of how, you know, useful that could be as a mechanism, I think that would be great. Thank you. Um, Rachel? Um, I just wanted to pick up on what Dio was saying, actually, about judging whether people, how you can measure whether people feel included or not. And the phrase that, that comes to my mind is, um, is everyone's voice being heard? Um, that, I think that's the measure of in inclusion um, and that's what we need to, to start thinking about tracking. Um, and Daya's obviously done amazing work uh, researching this whole area. She's the expert in this. But um, yeah, it's about people that the, the, the state of belonging is about, is my voice being heard for me? That's my takeaway. Brilliant. Thank, thanks, Rachel. Daya? Yeah, and I guess just to quickly say that it is the Young Foundation's research, not Dyer's research person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think for me, it would just be a case of making sure that whatever strategies are a positive action initiatives that are in, uh, that are taken on needs to be specific to the context. So the organisations need to be aware of their own sort of context and speaking to those within the organisations, those um, who use their services to really kind of understand what particular initiatives are needed and would be most effective in that context. Thank you. And Tamara, you've got the, the final word. Oh, there's so much to say in the final word. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, well, I, I just pretty much agree with everybody. Um, but what I was going to say is it's really important to share experiences. Um, if you're unhappy about something, speak out about it because your experience might change the life of somebody else and it might help somebody else to go and make that first step towards making a difference. And if you are having other issues, go and speak to the CEO, go and speak to the chair of trustees, go to the complaints process or go and get advice from charities and organisations like the Young Trustees Movement or go to the Charity Commission. But all in all, it's really important to make sure you include people and ensure you're diverse, accountable and actually changing lives of people because that's what trustees are here to do. Brilliant. Thank you. That's a great way to end. Um, so it just leaves me to say thanks for everyone uh, for joining. Thanks for the audience. There's been some great um, conversations going on in the chat and some brilliant questions coming through. Um, so please do share your feedback. There'll be a short survey which will just pop up when you leave the webinar. Um, so your feedback will be brilliant. Um, regulars will know that Dialogue and Debate usually takes place on the first Wednesday of every month. Um, but from now on, we're going to be hosting our webinars slightly less frequently um, to allow for us to work on some other projects um, but do catch up on all of the other webinars um, on our website as well as our podcasting channel um, which is on SoundCloud, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, conferences and our other work you can also sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or email us and at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk um, so do stay in touch um, and thanks everyone for getting involved. Thanks Jason, Tamana, Dio and Rachel. Goodbye.